When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That you counsel companies that a whistleblower payment is, quote, net present value of career loss, end quote. What does that mean and how do you explain that concept? I posed that question to Mary Inman, partner at Constantine Cannon and head of the firm's international whistleblower practice. It led to one of the most interesting discussions that I've had around whistleblower, whistleblower law, whistleblower litigation, and how companies can harness whistleblowers to not only save money, but make companies run more efficiently and, at the end of the day, more profitably. I know you'll enjoy this most interesting episode with Mary Inman on the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, I'm really thrilled to have with me Mary Inman. Mary's a partner at Constantine Cannon. And as her firm's website identifies, she is on assignment in London, although not in London today. So, Mary, first of all, welcome. And thanks you so much for taking the time to visit with me. It's a pleasure, Tom. Really happy to be here. So what does it mean to be on assignment from a San Francisco office to your London office? Yeah, it was an exciting uh, assignment to have. So about four years ago, I was tapped to move to our London office and head our international whistleblower practice. So what that means uh, for your audience is that the U.S. whistleblower reward programs, meaning programs where the U.S. government pays uh, rewards to confidential informants as whistleblowers, has become so effective and well-known and widespread that um, I was asked to set up the shop in London to attract international whistleblowers. So um, when you have companies in a global economy uh, operating, multinationals operating overseas, um, the long reach of the U.S., uh, long arm of U.S. law enforcement um, it's just meant that there's an increasing number of people from the UK, Europe, and around the globe who can help contribute information to the U.S. and get paid. Mary, uh, I had the opportunity to interview you a little bit earlier for your talk at Converge 21, and you had some really interesting observations about whistleblowers. So I asked you if you would be willing to come back, and you graciously said yes. So uh, I anticipate a free-flow, complete geek out here on all <laughs> whistleblower. So let me just start with, I hope I wrote this down, that you counsel companies that a whistleblower payment is, quote, net present value of career loss, end quote. If I wrote that down correctly, uh, what does that mean and how do you explain that concept? 
Yeah. So um, especially internationally, I think in the United States, we've become accustomed to the concept of paying whistleblowers for the risk of coming forward and speaking out. A lot of people see that as a bounty, right? Um, and particularly in the UK, there's a cultural bias. I think we're perceived as Americans as overly mercenary, capitalistic, and that we have to pay people to do the right thing. And that British whistleblowers do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And I think that ignores the reality that I don't think any of us want to live in a society where the person who speaks up on behalf of all of us speaks for the company, not against the company, but for the company um, as it relates to wrongdoing and other problems that they somehow have to bear all the costs of, of being the whistleblower. So that cost typically can mean career long blacklisting. So, um, you know, not just your current employer may terminate you, but you may be seen as a um, as a liability moving forward. So what the whistleblower reward programs in the U.S. seek to do is put a financial safety net under that whistleblower. If they're on the fence, my clients don't blow the whistle to get the money, but if they're on the fence and trying to decide should I or shouldn't I, the hope is that this financial safety net would catch them and hopefully inspire them to undertake the risks of moving forward. So we say um, when you look at whistleblower awards, including yesterday, there was the largest award ever to a whistleblower from the CFTC, our commodities regulator, of $200 million. When you look at that and you start to amortize it over a career-long loss, you can see that even really what seem like jaw-dropping numbers can start to come back from the stratosphere back down to earth. When a lot of people, for instance, if you're in financial services or other areas, you're already making six figures. What if you're a young whistleblower and now your career, you've lost an entire career and all your training? That should count for something. Uh, Mary, let me pick up on your uh, thoughts on the Whistleblower Award, which was announced this week. It was unique in many aspects. Number one, the, the amount or overall value paid to the whistleblower. But perhaps one of the more, more unique aspects was that it was an enforcement action brought by international regulatory agencies. So we had the Financial Conduct Authority from the United Kingdom, and we had the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, I believe, in the United States. And uh, typically, we have not seen the SEC base the quantum portion of a whistleblower award on uh, either a fine and penalty assessed outside the United States or work that went to a regulator outside the United States. So, and uh, the bank, of course, we're identified as our favorite, Deutsche Bank. So, uh, <laughs> lots to talk about that on that alone. But how do you uh, how do you maybe analyze this as a shift in thinking on the part of the SEC? So, I think it's really interesting to me, Tom, that you're um, giving the credit to the SEC because that is a bias we all have. Because all of the there's been about every other week, you'll hear a reward coming out from the SEC. This is actually the CFTC, the Commodities Regulator. I'm sorry, that's okay. Both the CFTC and the SEC were born out of the Dodd Frank legislation to, um, as a way to protect against the financial crisis. And what's so interesting here is that um, the, before this point, the largest award that was given um, to a whistleblower under the SEC program was, I think, something like 114. Um, and so it's interesting to see the commodity regulator outpacing the SEC, but they both have the same um, program the same office of the whistleblower, the same enthusiasm for recruiting whistleblowers and helping them unlock 
their cases. So as to the amount of the award, I think it's really interesting because as you noted, um, it's actually not something new. Both the SEC and the CFTC, a whistleblower is allowed between 10 and 30% of any fine that the SEC or CFTC imposes as a result of the action or any related action. So this actually isn't the first time that a whistleblower has received a large award, not just from the fine that the regulator in the U.S., the SEC or CFTC imposed, but also the Financial Conduct Authority in the U.K. So it's actually as the statute was designed, um, and it's part of, in this case, obviously it was Deutsche Bank for LIBOR manipulation, huge fines were imposed there. And so the whistleblower received 10 to 30 percent. We don't know the exact percentage. It hasn't been divulged, but 10 to 30 percent of both the CFTC fine and the and the Financial Conduct Authority in the U.K., their fine as well. So uh, we started off uh, this podcast by you talking about your current assignment. Uh, So the other question I wanted to follow up with, what do you think the impact of this CFTC uh, whistleblower payment will have on international whistleblowing and perhaps the United States, either the SEC or the CFTC or, or any other agency which has an office of the whistleblower collaborating with foreign regulators uh, to help uh, reward a whistleblower who brings significant information to a foreign regulator who may share it with a U.S. regulator. That's right. And so I think I'm glad you asked that question because it's important to understand that it is all money coming from the SEC's investor, investor fund that pays for the whistleblower reward. So the Financial Conduct Authority is not contributing any percentage of its fine. So this is all by design as an extra attraction to whistleblowers to say, we're not just going to pay you for information that helps us impose a fine and open an investigation, but we're also going to help you impose it for others. So I think what's interesting, what does this say uh, uh, to the future of whistleblowing? What it says is um, it's like a poster, uh, a welcome mat that is sent out around the world to uh, whistleblowers saying, you're welcome here at the SEC. It's a calling card, if you will. Um, and I think there's been a lot of talk over the years about putting a cap on the amount that the whistleblower should receive. And I've been a strong detractor of that theory because part of what this does is the amount, first of all, why should, if the, why should a whistleblower who uncovers a massive fraud be penalized by having a cap put on it? It should be you're entitled to whatever percentage of this size of the fraud, and you probably and certainly would have undertaken outsized risk for an outsized reward. So, um, but what it does, those numbers are jaw dropping and they get people's attention. And it is what allows people around the globe to take notice of the program. So I think what you will, I'm confident what you will see is a continued increase in the number of tips that are filed with both the SEC and the CFTC program. The SEC currently gets 6,000, six, six to 7,000 tips a year. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see an e- increase with numbers like that. Um, it certainly sends the right signal that these programs work and this these tips are worth paying for. Mary, uh, first of all, you're one of you're the first person I've ever interviewed who's been the subject of a New York Times article. So that makes you very cool in my book. <laughs> uh, but uh, the subject of that article was uh, international whistleblowers, really. And it was there's some U.S. firms, U.S. based firms that are looking for whistleblowers outside the United States. There are some U.S. firms that seek to help companies understand 
what a whistleblower means uh, and how do you uh, negotiate that or navigate, I should say, that whether you don't, whether you uh, the whistleblower goes to the regulators or they report internally. Do you think uh, companies in the United Kingdom, the EU, or any of the other areas where you're practicing the international whistleblower practice really understand the, the power of a whistleblower and how they can capture that power if they have an internal whistleblowing system? I think that there, we're certainly in the United States, we're ahead of the UK and Europe in terms of our willingness to accept all types of whistleblowers. We've actually, um, we obviously are the only, one of the only countries in North America, although Canada also pays whistleblowers rewards. We expand the definition of how do you empower a whistleblower, protect a whistleblower is beyond just having the legal retaliation, anti-retaliation protections, but also to empower you to give your information to the regulator and actually have your message act upon. So I think um, we're ahead in that way, but the the EU is quickly catching up. So the new EU whistleblowing directive, which I know you and I have talked about previously with Professor Vigilenza Abazi, um, that is also taking big strides and, in fact, has turned um, the, the standard of proof on its head for whistleblower retaliation claims. It's now the onus is on not the whistleblower, but on the employer to say that they um, retaliated against someone for speaking up and not for some other pretextual or other reason. So we're starting to see huge strides. Um, I just I don't think that Europe or the UK has seen the value in paying whistleblower, incentivizing whistleblowers to bring their information to the regulators. And part of that, I think, is because the regulators don't tend to be as aggressive as the regulators are in the United States. So there's been lots of criticisms leveled at the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK for sitting on tons of whistleblower reports and not doing anything. And so I think in the US, we better understand and are more aggressive in acting on and wanting information that allows us to be more effective in our enforcement efforts. And I just don't see, I'm slowly seeing that creep up in, um, in Europe, but it's not quite there yet. I think they have a ways to go. And the irony of course, is that all police departments and securities departments pay informants rewards. It's just, I don't understand why that hasn't crossed over to understand that that's a similar device that could be used more broadly. I've had the opportunity to interview a couple of uh, defense uh, or lawyers who tend to practice on the defense side of whistleblowers. And one of their key messages, if not the most important message, is to, to be proactive, to put those programs in place, to capture that information. I think in the United States that message even uh, I think that message resonates, uh, particularly because of the SEC. But is that message, are you successful in communicating that that message outside the United States as well? Yeah, I think we are. And um, one of my favorite statistics to give is that I think there's a, a, a false notion that if you offer rewards, if you put a carrot in front of a whistleblower, they're going to bypass the internal reporting mechanisms altogether and exclusively go to the regulator. And that's just not borne out by the evidence. The SEC, which keeps its data, says that 84% of the whistleblowers last year who received uh, rewards, all of them, all of that 84% reported internally first. So I think what's going on is there's, there is a disconnect between um, or there's there's a lack of listening up. And so I think it's important to understand that those reward programs don't undermine 
um, compliance efforts. And in fact, we advise and the other data just shows that whistleblowers, you often don't even know they're whistleblowing. Sometimes they're just doing their job. And as a consequence of their job, if you're head of internal audit and you're finding a report that shows a serious liability that will impact the next earnings report, then often you're treated like a whistleblower. So whistleblowers are, I think we have to really change our definition of who they are. And it's not always a conscious choice. Um, and I think we need to start thinking about them in terms, in business terms, that they are not only are they not corporate liabilities, they're actually assets. They're your um, best risk management tool. As Christian Hunt, a social behavioral scientist in the UK, a compliance guru says, they're forward indicators of risk. Um, and I think the more we look at the research and we can talk about some other research coming out of George Washington University and the University of Utah that actually supports that that notion that companies with hotlines with reporting mechanisms that are more active than other companies who have silent or underutilized reporting mechanisms are actually more profitable. They have fewer um, fewer um, investigations, fewer um, lawsuits, and the lawsuits they do have settled for less. So I think I'm hoping that message is coming across um, that we're sort of deciding or becoming more accepting of the notion of what whistleblowers really are, which is not, not only are they not disloyal, they're probably your most loyal employee because they have the temerity to speak out about wrongdoing. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more from Mary Inman. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mary, I think you used this phrase in our prior podcast that whistleblowers can be seen as the canaries in the coal mine. And even if you didn't, I'm going to attribute it to you because it's so cool. Uh, But the second part of what you talked about, uh, we now have some pretty substantive research from a fellow named Kyle Welch uh, at Georgetown who took a look at, I think, 15,000 anonymized whistleblower reports from NABEX Global and found a significant, or as he termed it, a material decrease in regulatory expenses, fines, penalties, and litigation costs from companies that not simply had a whistleblowing system, but had an entire culture of whistleblowing, which meant they they had a reporting system, they accepted that report, they uh, did something with that report, whether it was investigate, remediate, or other, and then they kept the whistleblower really in the loop, so they, they had a feedback mechanism. Is does that second part of, of the message that you actually can have a material reduction, and these were U.S. public companies reporting, then uh, that means 5% uh, difference. So you have a $500 million or $50 billion company. That's a huge number. Does, is that sort of business analysis starting to resonate uh, to your clients as well? Yes, and I think that's um, that is what I've known intuitively. Representing whistleblowers for twenty four years, I have always known that they are 
loyal company employees who want to stay in their jobs and want their company to do well um, and are often just shocked. Not only are they, they expect to be applauded for um, at seeing the risks, being the canary in the coal mine, and then are just shocked to see that it's the opposite, that they shoot the messenger to divert the attention for the message. So this research from Kyle Welch and Professor Steuben is amazing because it basically makes it empirically, it empirically tells us what something I've known intuitively um, is that they're fantastic employees. And it makes sense, right? And you are very, it's very important to put it in the context of that, in the, you are only going to get this benefit of whistleblowers um, being forward indicators of risks, helping you manage your risks, foresee them, and um, deal with them before they metastasize into something bigger. If you have the type of a reporting mechanism and culture that engenders the trust that's needed for that whistleblower to feel like they can safely speak up, and as you noted, that something will be done about it and they'll be told about the result. To the extent I know that there are certain restrictions on how much you can tell, but at least it'll be informed. Um, so my hope is that this goes a long way to taking the stigma out of whistleblowing and instead seeing it more as the virtue that it is and encouraging. You know, one of uh, my colleagues loves to say his name's uh, Charlie Middleton, an IRS whistleblower. And he said one of the best things you can do as a company is hire a former whistleblower and. Um, you're, if you want to signal that whistleblowing is virtuous, then that's a great way to do that. But I think we need to start seeing um, in performance evaluations uh, a plus factor being given or a metric that we analyze and, and look at you based on um, your ability to speak hard truths. So we recently had our second FCPA enforcement action in 2021. It involved a UK company, WPP. And uh, the bribery was in multiple countries, but one of which was India. And in India, we had a uh, the company had an internal whistleblower, and that whistleblower reported seven separate times before the company uh, took it seriously enough to hire an independent firm to perform an internal investigation. They had previously uh, allowed the people who were actually engaging in the bribery and corruption to investigate themselves. So we knew the answer to that. Um, is that the type of, of story that you can use to talk to clients about exactly the points you've been making that people want to report, that people will be diligent uh, because it's the right thing to do? And it, it literally had one whistleblower report seven times with documents, with evidence. Uh, is, is, does that kind of fact pattern really help you in counseling clients? So for uh, the, the data that we've seen is that whistleblowers usually try not once, not twice, but four to five times before ever going external. And of course, external can be to the regulator or to the press. So I think seven does not surprise me at all, because, again, I think a lot of these whistleblowers are not even seeing themselves as whistleblowers. They're just trying to do their job and they are pretty insistent about the thing being corrected um, and then frankly get surprised when it isn't addressed. And of course, when it's leadership that it's harder, it's harder for that mechanism, the reporting mechanism to work when the people that you're reporting to are part of the problem. So that's, I think that's part of the issue. Um, so I think the other lesson here and something that I think is really an important takeaway is that the fate of whistleblowers is uniquely tied often to the fate of the compliance officer. 
Um, and we've done a lot of work trying to get compliance officers to think of themselves as whistleblowers, to be more sim- sympathetic and hearing whistleblowers' messages. Whistleblowers are not always the easiest people to listen to. Um, but of course, of course, compliance officers are also people speaking the hard truths. They're seen as a cost center to the organization and people who get in the way of the business trying to, you know, take on new plans. And so, um, now that we've seen huge frauds like Wirecard, Enron, um, all the big Theranos, big ones of the day, we we understand there were compliance officers in all of those. And if we can elevate the compliance officer's position to more of a board level or higher position where they're not, their voices aren't silenced, that will be better not just for the company's help, but better for whistleblowers because of that sort of synergies between uh, what they can now have more compassion for what a whistleblower is trying to do, given that it looks a lot like what their job description is. Here, let me change the focus just a little bit. Uh, I am a recovering trial lawyer. <laughs> and in my trial lawyer life, uh, I did uh, tort defense. And one of the claims that's available uh, in some states is what's called a bystander claim. So if you witness a very horrible accident or you're subjected to some trauma, even if you weren't personally involved, potentially you could receive damages for that. And I want to use that as an introduction to what we've just begun to see here in the United States, which is, number one, protection for bystanders, and number two, retaliation uh, claims by bystanders who either agreed with a whistleblower or reported additional information that a primary whistleblower might have brought up and then uh, later their career suffered uh, within the organization. Is that something that you're seeing on the international whistleblower scene? Well, it's interesting. I think, yes, I am seeing it globally. And I think it, it comes from an unfortunate phenomenon. We've been talking about this medieval notion that I think reflexively in our DNA, we want to shoot the messenger. Um, We don't like to take on board criticism, but often it's the most loyal people who hold a mirror up to you. But your first reaction is to get defensive. And so I I think that that's part of part of the problem here is that we need to get at that culture where we learn to quiet that part of the mind and understand who these people are and and um, what they're trying to say. So in terms of the bystander, whistleblowers become radioactive. Um, and they lose their um, cohort at work. All of their colleagues all of a sudden see, you know, oh, well, this whistleblower, they just spoke up about this practice and now they're no longer in meetings. Now they're basically in the file room in Siberia or the equivalent of Siberia. And that sends a message to those other whistleblowers, I better be quiet. And so um, at that radioactive effect is not surprising. So anyone who who joins with a whistleblower, it's like it's contagious. So we've seen similar discrimination, retaliation, not just against the whistleblowers, but against their family members. If their family members are either within the organization or the family members actually work as independent contractors for the organization, we've seen them retaliated against. We've seen the press, the journalists who actually support the whistleblowers being retaliated against. So it's certainly a phenomenon I've observed, and it's one of the reasons why in the EU directive they've expanded the definition of whistleblower to go beyond just employees to independent contractors and broader than that, because there's a recognition that the effects can be felt more broadly. So I'm not surprised to hear it, um, and I can definitely see the basis for it because I've seen, like I said, I've seen one of my client's brothers had a business that um, was serving, giving services to the defendant that um, my client had sued. And one of the first things they did is, you know, cancel that contract. 
so I'd like to now turn to the EU whistleblower directive, and you touched upon this a little bit earlier, but I wondered if we might be able to visit around the affirmative obligation of companies to show there was no retaliation and obviously how that contrasts with um, the United States system, which is uh, uh, silent on that point. First, could you explain what that part of the directive requires and then how a company might fulfill that uh, if they find themselves in a, a legal imbroglio? Yeah, I, I love the question because um, the statistics in the United States and the United Kingdom where our whistleblower protection laws put the burden on the whistleblower to prove that they were retaliated against, that the statistics are um, in the UK fewer than I think 13 or 14 percent of whistleblowers win an employment tribunal. And there's similarly bleak numbers in the United States. And I think part of that is because it's very difficult if you're the whistleblower to overcome the burden when a whist- when the employer is going to inevitably, and this is what we see, um, come up with pretextual reasons for why they took that adverse employment action. So what happens commonplace in our cases is my clients routinely, not all of them, they're not all um, angels, but a lot of them will have had continually very high marks in their performance evaluations year over year. And then as soon as they speak up, all of a sudden they're not a team player, but we're going to look at things like, oh, your expense report had some problem. Or in the case of one UK whistleblower, throughout his career, he had been chronically late, but he was one of their highest performers. So they never addressed his chronic lateness ever. As soon as he blows the whistle, he's fired for chronic lateness. Um, and so as when you put that burden on, when you shift that burden and put it over onto the employer, I think we're going to see a lot better results for whistleblowers um, because that's just the natures of the mechanics of the burden of proof. Who has the, who has the burden of proof to put it all forward? And I think it'll be much harder for the companies. So we'll see. I, I would love to see the United States, the UK, and other countries following suit, changing and revising our laws to shift the burden. Um, so I think it's a great development and hopefully it'll make those numbers go up in terms of successful whistleblowers winning retaliation claims. So Mary, unfortunately we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, your practice, or any, perhaps any of the topics we've touched upon, where could they go? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Twitter uh, at Marianman94. Um, we have a fantastic website um, and a blog at our firm, the Whistleblower Insider blog. So you can find us at CC Whistleblower Insider on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, and uh, I think that's the best way, ways to reach us. We do a lot of speaking and talking on these subjects and appreciate having the audience. Well, Mary, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with me, and I greatly hope we can continue this conversation. Likewise, Tom. Really appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part podcast series where I interviewed Matt Silverman. We took a deep dive into trade and export compliance. We premiered a couple of new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network in October, Karsten Tams and I take a look at design thinking and how this social engineering tool can be used by a compliance professional. And on a passion project, I'm doing the Hill Country podcast. In our initial episode, I visit with Kathy Ragsdale, the matriarch of Camp Stewart for Boys, located just outside of Hunt, Texas. So check out these podcasts as long, along with the 70 other podcasts now appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.